Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Hi everybody, welcome to ODI Friday's lunchtime lecture. My name is Josh, I'm a consultant here at the ODI. I have the pleasure today of introducing Rosa Vasileva, who will be talking to us today about using data for sustainable development in Tanzania. Before we get started with that, uh, just a couple of rules around please save your questions to the end of the talk and uh, please use the microphone so that the people at home can see you. Uh, we will also be using the hashtag ODI Fridays for people on Twitter to uh, get your questions across. So without further ado, go ahead, Rosa. Thank you very much. Um, so hello, everyone. My name is Rosa Vasileva, indeed, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Nottingham. And uh, I have been uh, lucky enough to have uh, been working uh, in international development for the last uh, seven or so years, uh, primarily with the open government data programs and digital development programs with government around the world. So that uh, sort of led uh, to my PhD topic, uh, which is focusing at uh, looking how governments in Africa are using data, governments and citizens in Africa are using data to support the citizen-centric urban, sustainable urban development primarily. Um, and uh, thank you very much for the ODI for hosting this talk, but also um, the ODI has had kindly agreed to uh, be my implementation partner for this research. Uh, so we're doing it in a collaboration uh, with this organization. Uh, and um, uh, this topic also has come out of our mutual interest to uh, see how data makes impact at uh, the local, very local level for people's, uh, in people's lives. Uh, so basically, um, just a bit of a background. Um, as I was working with uh, uh, data-driven projects around the world and I was seeing how much uh, actually international uh, development donors and institutions, are put, uh, how much resources and effort they're putting into those programs to help uh, uh, countries develop, I uh, started questioning like how much impact are we actually making, especially since the premise is that data is uh, making most impact for the local communities at the very local impact, uh, for um, people to get uh, better access to education, health, uh, very practical services that they're getting every day. And um, uh, so it, it led uh, me to sort of thinking that uh, cities uh, would probably be uh, the best uh, form of that application uh, due to the dramatic urbanization and the population in cities uh, growth, uh, especially in less developed countries such as in Africa, um, countries where I used to work. Um, so those cities are more than any uh, other cities are um, facing urban challenges. And the smart, this smart city concept, by the way, um, who has heard of smart cities in this audience? And who knows what it actually is? I thought so. If you knew and I didn't, that would be a problem. Uh, but uh, there has been a boom in academic literature about smart cities, as you know. And so I was wondering, like, um, what, uh, what application does this concept actually has in developing countries? And what it actually means? And uh, most of all, what it means for the citizens? Because uh, smart cities has emerged also as a concept that is most uh, citizen-centric um, approach to urban development. Um, however, the, if you look through the literature currently, uh, most focus and emphasis are placed on technological solutions and policy around smart cities. Not so much really um, ac rigorous academic research uh, is looking at um, a citizen aspect of it. Um, so smart, so I started by looking at what, uh, what it means to be a smart city, what um, 
how people define it. And as you can imagine, different disciplines uh, kind of take this concept into very different directions. It's a complex uh, kind of phenomena. And depending on what... Uh, specifically angle you're coming from, you would be defining it differently. However, some uh, authors like Jill Garcia, for instance, has, uh, have attempted to sort of uh, analyze systematically all those different um, definitions. And uh, they, uh, for instance, came uh, to a conclusion that most of them actually has to deal with technology and data is part of this uh, technology approach. Um, they have to deal with the uh, critical infrastructures in the cities. Um, uh, trying to provide better services to, to the population. So citizen actually has uh, become to be a center of this uh, smart city approach. And uh, <clears throat> uh, looking at integration of all different systems and infrastructures. infrastructures. And uh, <clears throat> mainly the idea is that it's a forward-looking approach. So it's um, uh, a strategy um, that is sort of aims to be, uh, make cities more sustainable and livable. And as you can see, uh, for instance, uh, Giffinger, he uh, looked at the, he uh, evaluated, uh, assessed sort of like mid-sized smart cities in uh, Europe, and uh, they came up with these aspects of, uh, six aspects of smart cities, such as smart economy, smart people, governance, mobility, environment, and living. So I was like, great, so what does it actually mean for developing countries? Um, and uh, the Open Data Institute, coincidentally, also released a report on um, open data for resilient cities, which also kind of signaled to me the interest in looking uh, how open data is being used for urban development. And uh, they um, uh, pointed out in the report that more effort needs to be put into actually assessing those similarities and differences between low and high income country. Uh, most of the research that we're seeing actually on smart cities is coming from high-income countries, more advanced countries. Um, so that's part of the reason also why I wanted to look at uh, low-income countries and see how they compare to the literature that we're uh, seeing currently on smart cities. Um, some other issues that the report, for instance, uh, outlined were uh, open data for urban uh, planning, ethics of open data in cities, inequality, and things like that. And I did an internship at the ODI, um, not this autumn, but the autumn before, uh, which also helped us to kind of um, gather our thinking. This is the report, and if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend that you check it out. Um, and so we kind of landed at these research questions. So basically, what are the differences across different dimensions of data-driven engagement between high and low-income countries? And more specifically, I'm interested in how cities in the global south employ those data-driven approaches to support citizen-centric sustainable urban development. In, uh, in order to look at those, I would be looking at how government and citizens engage in this process, in what ways do, engage, do these engagements and data actually support um, citizens? And uh, whether governance models and structures support or inhibit um, citizen-centric practices. And so um, in my research design, I look, I'm looking at uh, case studies of Dar es Salaam and uh, Nairobi, Kenya. And uh, I am comparing them, first of all, between each other because they are uh, more or less similar economic background and they're in this, um, in both in Africa um, and would be more comparable than, for instance, take Tanzania and London, and then compare it against the literature that we currently have. So phase one, it was the initial literature view where I, um, as I already said, looked at the smart cities literature, but also at uh, literature on 
uh, ICT for development, so uh, information communication um, technologies uh, used for uh, international development, and uh, a lot of other literature around African cities um, and um, uh, data-driven approaches. Then I, uh, this uh, second phase is the expert interviews. So basically this is uh, what I'm going to talk about mostly today, is my first set of interviews that I did in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Um, how many people have been to Tanzania, by the way? Great, so I can tell you anything and you're going to believe me then. <laughs> Not really. But anyway, it's great because I'll take you on a little journey to Dar es Salaam and hopefully you'll enjoy that. Um, and then finally, once I'm done with my interviews from Nairobi as well, which I did, but I need to still analyze, I'll go back to both cities and do focus groups with the communities because experts' interviews uh, have given me <coughs> an overall um, kind of uh, look and, um, at uh, how those projects are working from more, more or less implementers' points of view, people who are designed and who are uh, working in that um, sort of area, but I also want to hear from the communities and I've, uh, from my research design, I figured that uh, focus groups would work best. Uh, for one other option would be to do the uh, field observations, which kind of are hard, you will um, understand in a bit why, because uh, it's um, kind of, um, it's, it's, it's quite difficult to do anything with data in Tanzania. And uh, just going around and uh, looking at people working with data might not be safe for anyone. So I've decided to go with uh, focus groups instead, which are a bit uh, more doable. So why Dar es Salaam? Well, um, I've been working with Dar es Salaam through my previous uh, projects as well. But it's also the, the fastest growing city in Africa. You can see that just over 50 years ago, it was just over 100,000 people. Now, uh, actually, the, the 4 million is already an estimation because it was a uh, figure based on uh, 2012 uh, census, which is uh, just rapidly getting outdated because um, the population is already estimated at 6 or 7 million just a few years after that. And the projection is that um, in just about 30 years, it will be over 20 million people. And you can imagine how much uh, pressure uh, this uh, population growth is putting on um, city services and the way that uh, people are living in the city. Uh, Dar es Salaam is very significant to the country uh, in economic terms as well. It's actually generating almost 40% of the entire country's GDP. And uh, the pro a big problem for the city is that uh, over 70% of it is unplanned. So basically slums, which are popping up everywhere. Uh, one of the implications of that is that actually geographic data that you have of the city also needs to be constantly updated. And the last time the government did official um, geographic data collection for the city was something like 20 years ago. So they're still basing their, uh, their um, programs for the city on data that's actually already completely outdated. Um, so hence, uh, different projects came um, around to kind of help that uh, problem in particular, including uh, an open street mapping initiative uh, called Romani Haria, which is a uh, um, translation from, uh, from Swahili is uh, open map, basically. It's a community initiative uh, originally kind of uh, launched by the World Bank uh, to help uh, address exactly that problem, to sort of 
teach the skills to the citizens who can contribute to collecting geographic data to uh, help the government and the citizens both uh, kind of make decisions based on the actual accurate data. And that's only one example. There are many initiatives in the city um, that are uh, happening that are aiming to address similar um, urban challenges. Another issue is uh, in uh, Dar es Salaam specifically is heavy rains and flooding, which uh, kind of uh, distracts and gets the city out of um, balance for quite a while uh, during the rainy seasons. Um, and Romani, one of the actually um, uh, objectives of Romani Hari is also help to prepare for those flood um, uh, seasons, uh, for those uh, events, by having uh, accurate mapping data constantly available online and open data access. Uh, and there has been, a f when I started looking at uh, specifically Dar es Salaam, I've noticed there has been a few uh, kind of uh, talks here and there about how Dar es Salaam can become a smart city. To be honest, nothing so much from the government, but different community members and activists uh, were trying to organize some workshops to discuss what uh, the future of a smart Dar es Salaam could actually look like. And so, you know, the Uber has come to um, Dar es Salaam a couple of years ago. Um, there have been uh, some discussions organized by the development partners, um, the development institu institutions who are working on uh, projects in uh, Tanzania and in Dar es Salaam and sp uh, specifically. Some community groups uh, created a Twitter account. And this is uh, sort of the things that they're posting. Um, so Smart City Dar is uh, wondering whether the city is becoming more resilient. Um, this uh, was uh, in 2017 when Romani Haria was actually already around and many other initiatives that are aimed to deal with flooding, yet we see that half a year later and half a year later, the situation is pretty much the same. So that also was one of the reasons why I was wondering like, what can be done differently so that the take up uh, of those initiatives is uh, better and the impact is actually achieving what they were aimed to achieve. So is Dar es Salaam a smart city? Obviously not. But we, uh, especially through my interviews, we nailed sort of a term pockets of smartness. So there are initiatives, especially uh, that has to do with data and how digital data is being employed uh, to deal with those urban issues that we can um, call kind of smart city initiatives. And those are the uh, things that I'm looking at uh, through my research. So what have I done? I went to uh, Dar es Salaam about a year ago and I've spoken with a variety group of stakeholders. Um, I've done 25 interviews, um, different donors, um, experts, international experts, uh, government officials from the local level. This is actually photos of the uh, local ward level um, uh, office. You can see this is the only computer they have and they're responsible probably for about 20,000 residents or something like that. Um, and so just, you know, this is how some interviews uh, were being conducted. Um, and here you can actually see one of the government officials uh, looking through the data. So that was one of the challenge when, uh, uh, when you realize that you actually have to, do to deal with lots of paper-based document. How do you actually uh, translate that in digital data and how do you actually make uh, decisions based on that? Actually, just jumping ahead, um, 
these level government officials were telling me that they provide a lot of data up to the government, um, to the city level and to the national level, but they never actually get to use it. So then it gets digitized on the higher levels, but they, they don't actually get to use the data themselves. So they don't get the data back to them in a way that they can you know, use uh, practically to make their decisions on. So in response to that problem, they've, uh, like this particular officer created a list of data sets that he needed. He actually hired two interns to go around his, um, consist his area his award, and uh, um, sort of collect uh, just those indicators that he urgently needed. So a lot of data collection is kind of happening like that, ad hoc, it's not systematic, so there is no real way of actually accumulating it and making it publicly available, even if they wanted to. But whether they want to, we'll uh, um, see later. So my interviews basically focused on finding out uh, how my interviewees are actually dealing with the data, whether they're using the city data, whether they're making it publicly available, uh, how do they access the data, uh, and then discussing the overall smart city concept, what it means to them, what it means for Dar es Salaam, and then finally uh, the, uh, fo the focus area that I have actually is where is this citizen in this whole process. Um, and uh, one of the uh, interesting uh, findings for me was how uh, citizen-generated data, for instance, is perceived in Dar es Salaam, or maybe generally in Tanzania, especially to the Tanzanian government. So, some of the emerging themes uh, from this research, and I think that's the bit that you were all waiting for, was that the, actually I found that the city governance structure and the politics of the city are extremely complex, and that could explain why we haven't really seen any uh, smart city strategy or anything else from the government, because even within the government, um, within my government interviewees, uh, people couldn't really definitely tell me like who should be responsible at the city level from the government side of actually putting such vision to, uh, together and forward. Um, one of the reasons is there is um, there are mayors. First of all, there is one mayor for Dar es Salaam, but also there are five other mayors that are sort of uh, responsible for each different district of Dar es Salaam. But on top of that, there is a regional commissioner that is uh, appointed by the president for the entire district of Dar es Salaam. And so that regional commissioner reports directly to the president, um, but the regional commissioner is from a different party than the mayor. So there's a, this political uh, kind of tension going on, and uh, while some people said that the regional commissioner should champion a smart city uh, vision, others said that actually it's the city hall who needs to champion. So the, there's, uh, it doesn't seem like in the nearest future any of these people will be actually taking a lead on that. Um, so hence, uh, it's complicated from the top-down approach, but also I've learned, uh, and actually when I spoke with the other um, sort of development partners, people who are actually putting uh, community-driven projects together, um, it was a kind of a real, uh, also finding for them that uh, the government has very uh, kind of a, a low-level uh, presence but it's semi-official, so that um, we learned that the, there's a 10-cell leader system in Tanzania. So when the, the donor usually comes and then try to work through the, um, uh, they try to collaborate with the government, they would go to the lowest official level, which would be the um, ward, um, sub-ward leaders, sorry. But apparently, there's a, even a stronger um, um, sort of governance system uh, lower, below that, and it's, um, uh, 
a leader for every 10 houses. So unless you actually establish a relation and you get uh, those people to collaborate with you, it's really hard to do anything with the communities. So that, that's a very important finding. Um, if you, uh, try, if you try to basically do, uh, work with the community, work with the citizens at the citizens' level, uh, because those people have uh, um, a lot of weight in the communities, uh, they're elected and they're, uh, they're critical to any of those projects uh, that I, I've been talking about. Um, the way uh, the community works is that uh, they come together every couple months. Um, it's bi-monthly subword meetings, but really I was told that sometimes they take place uh, two or three month, uh, um, months apart. And uh, the way people learn about them is basically someone going around with a megaphone and, and telling that this meeting is happening at that place uh, at that time, uh, which is, as you can imagine, um, whoever heard or whoever learned it from their 10 cell leaders would come. But um, from my conversation, uh, with the word uh, lead, uh, officers, for instance, um, it didn't seem like everybody gets to participate, but that's the citizen engagement model, that's the citizen participation uh, kind of approach that the government has. And uh, that's almost the only place where citizens can really come and uh, voice their concerns, uh, apart from uh, some other committees um, uh, that are working on the local level. Um, so this, this whole smart city debate has uh, sort of two approaches, right? There's one that's uh, coming from the government, so putting together a smart city vision um, and uh, kind of um, signaling to the lower levels, level governments of that, uh, you know, those approaches are um, the way forward for the city, which through my interviews I learned uh, would be complicated in the city of Dar Dar es Salaam. However, the bottom-up approach where you basically uh, open the data to the citizens and let them innovate and let them use that data to solve their own problems also proved to be problematic because the government in Tanzania is quite strong and they believe that they are the guardians of the data and they need to basically... Um, I'll be talking about it a bit later, but the, the National Statistics Act basically gives the mandate for all the official statistics and any data that goes public uh, solely to the government. So unless this is approved from the government, you can't really publicize or use any of the, of the data uh, openly and uh, publicly. And so uh, to me, I, you know, when I was thinking which approach uh, Tanzania or Dar es Salaam could go forward, both kind of uh, proved problematic. So what's the way out? Um, one of the things that came up is potentially, instead of having a big picture vision or like trying to do uh, uh, sort of large scale projects, is to uh, focus on the small pilots and uh, kind of work with the government on uh, those small projects to prove to them the um, value and then take it up. Um, uh, but that also uh, could be uh, problematic considering uh, the kind of like how the gover governance is organized um, in the city. Um, so another, coming from that actually, from how the government is organized, um, another issue was that how the government sees the citizen and how the citizens see the government. Like what is actually, what is the relation between them? So what I learned uh, 
is that the government, uh, like I said, has, feels very strongly about um, uh, possession of the data. They have to control the data. And when I, I was approaching the government with the question, so what is actually the role of the citizen in generating that data? The answer was that the role is basically providing the data to us. So basically contributing to, data, to government data collection process was the only way of uh, kind of citizen participation in data collection or even using of the data. Because when I said, well, how about uh, the citizens can just, um, you know, um, innovate based on the data they have, it didn't seem like the government believed that the citizens would have the skills necessarily. So the government always feels like they need to be involved because they have the technical expertise. And that actually makes those community projects a bit problematic. If you have the government constantly involved, then you know, the, the incentives are kind of shift. So it becomes a government-owned project rather than the community initiative. So that, that also proved problematic for the community data projects. Um, and the, the dynamic between national and the city is also different. Different, uh, different sources of data are collected differently by the national and the city levels. Uh, and finally, um, actually, the elephant in the room is the Statistics Act. That basically, if you haven't heard um, about that issue before, you might want to look into that more uh, in detail. It's a uh, law that prevents, basically makes it illegal, like I said. And uh, <coughs> uh, in many cases, people would just be uh, kind of dis, uh, disincentivized to use any data because they could just basically go to prison if they um, collect or use any data on their own. Uh, and the government even spelled out uh, that if you do want to collect your own data and uh, kind of use it publicly, then you have to, again, engage the government. So the government feels the need to constantly be not only informed, but also um, take part in the process. Um, so that, as you imagine, um, even for the open street uh, mapping community, like uh, as uh, the way it originated here in the UK, it was a completely different thing from the government in order to prove to the government or even in order to have their own alternative source of the data to the one that the government has, um, which uh, uh, cannot uh, really happen in Dar es Salaam. Um, a lot of people uh, said to me that uh, data is just simply not available. And part of it, especially on the uh, very hyper-local level, would be that, as we saw, the data doesn't get originally... It, it gets collected pretty ad hoc, and it gets collected very for uh, a specific purpose, uh, for a specific reason, and not really digitally. So if you then when it get, gets passed... The belief is that the government has that granular data. But indeed, if you think about the process, and when the data gets passed to the higher level and gets digitized there, perhaps it already gets um, aggregated and you know, no one really has access to that very granular data. However, the interesting thing about the 10-cell leader uh, system is that uh, the government officials who I spoke said that this system was specifically set up so the government at any point can have access to the very low-level data. Which, but they mostly use it for the emergency um, situations and when the ex this access... Uh, needs uh, to be quick, and again, it's so purposeful, so ad hoc that uh, it doesn't just get systematically collected. Um, and finally, uh, the way uh, so the in, one of the um, th 
things that uh, we've seen elsewhere, if, uh, is there, if where there is a lack of some data from the government, for instance, um, the private sector can come in and fill that gap. Uh, well, that also uh, didn't really um, show in Tanzania because uh, many interviewers told me that uh, it's not really in uh, Tanzanian culture. Like the entrepreneurial culture is kind of lacking for those so sorts of initiatives. But also if you um, look at how, uh, how kind of protective the government of the data is, it's really hard for um, private sector to come in and like, find ways to um, collect or use data when there's simply data is not available or you're not legally allowed to collect any data. Uh, and the way you communicate data to the people is also has to be somewhat different in Tanzania. Um, because uh, well, the value of data is also was told that people just don't really appreciate the data for what it is. Um, for instance, the, one of the cultural aspects is that people are more uh, geared towards um, storytelling, meaning that even when they come to those community meetings, the subword meetings, for instance, um, people uh, they are more kind of like basing their um, decisions or like their um, complaints about the situation based on their stories rather than come and present the facts or being able to kind of show that um, simple, you know, uh, things like we don't have enough schools uh, because we have so many students and so many schools in our areas. This, this kind of thinking is not there. They would rather say, like, my, my kid doesn't have a desk in his class, but it's not uh, really uh, seen as... Uh, you have to show the data for the entire community in order to prove your point. Uh, and uh, interestingly, people were telling me that uh, people are very picture-oriented. So Instagram, you know, those apps that kind of like, in, in, you have to take it into account when you talk about data. So some projects actually came on board with um, putting together different art initiatives and how you present data to the uh, citizens uh, doing like uh, wall murals in the, in the city or... Uh, fashion design uh, competition, uh, data-driven fashion designs, those kinds of things. While I put culture here, I'm still trying to sort through what actually it means because in my interviews, lots of people said culture, but they meant actually different things. Some people actually referred to the way uh, people are living. Some people were more, more talking about uh, what it seems to be more cultural aspects is that people are quite reserved in Tanzania. They don't really talk about many issues publicly and openly. Um, so openness is not really part of the culture, like, you know, when you talk about sexual health, when you talk about, you know, some things that people are just not accustomed to talk in public. So it's hard to kind of break from that and say, well, now all the data will become available. By the way, uh, for the background, uh, actually, Tanzania did have an open data initiative. They launched uh, an open data portal in 2015, but that's for the uh, national, and they only put uh, three sectors plus some statistics data on it, but it didn't really uh, take off in the way that it was initially um, kind of planned. And there isn't uh, one for the city itself, which in many interviews, obviously, people um, kind of wished there was more open data for the city. And uh, an interesting example, Uber, since I also showed you, um, you know, a screenshot of the article that when Uber came to Dar es Salaam, Dar es Salaam was supposed to become smart city. 
Well, um, there is a slight problem with Uber because uh, having that, using maps, for instance, apparently, is not what uh, people were also accustomed to. So they kind of carried on, even though Uber drivers now had those gadgets and those um, you know, uh, tools to navigate, and uh, especially uh, when you have to deal with people like me who are coming from outside their slum and don't really know their way around, forget you don't know Swahili. So this is how Uber experience goes. You uh, call an Uber, then you receive a call that's in Swahili, a person is asking you where you are and where you're going, and also are you paying cash or credit. Uh, obviously, you don't understand anything, so you're lucky if you actually have a Swahili-speaking uh, person next to you who knows the area and can explain to the Uber driver how to get there. And then you get into the Uber, and then another, you know, uh, clarification of where you're actually going, right or left. And so that is just to say that this is how the taxi services were originally, and it didn't actually transition into this uh, new kind of way that Uber offered because people simply didn't, weren't accustomed. I was um, myself in uh, situations when I needed to start navigation for the Uber driver. And even though I knew that the, this driver had worked for several months, the system showed me that it was the first time this navigation system was used on this phone. So they're just carrying on with their, um, the, the way they're accustomed, basically. So these cultural barriers are definitely there. And... Um, through anecdotal also stories, I was told that uh, in just the con uh, conceptually, geographic information is not um, taught to Tanzanians the way, for instance, we perceive it. So even when you present a map to them, they actually don't really know what what it what actually it means. You know, so how to use it, where where you're going from there. Um, so that also presents a challenge for um, initiatives like open street mapping, for instance, when you give. When you teach people how to collect that data and you even explain to them, like you, you take them through the process of putting this data into the map, but then that step from using the map to solve their issues, you know, is, uh, bec is becoming problematic. So that also is a big challenge for Dar es Salaam in order to become um, a smart city. Um, and I spoke um, uh, quite a bit about the open street uh, mapping uh, initiative that the World Bank launched. Um, and uh, it, it's, only, it's only one of the examples, to be honest, of uh, data-driven initiatives. Um, and I will be using uh, other examples like the Community Cleanup Program, actually, uh, and an NGO-based initiative also is using a lot of geographical data and they are now collaborating with uh, also Romani Haria. Um, so one of the questions I was asking is whether actually Romani Haria proved impactful and whether it's improved the resilience. And again, the answer was that it's hard to really know whether, whether people are using that data and whether the governments are using the data for various reasons. Um, they don't really um, consider that data official, so that's one of the problems. Um, but also for any initiative like that, you really have to have all the political check marks from the government. In order for that initiative to work, you have to work with the government. So that community element, that citizen kind of generated element is getting lost. So it just made me think that, um, you know, for, it's very different from the West and we, we can't really... Uh, so in the, here in the more advanced cities, 
people who already have the skills and want to contribute it towards the society or urban development, they sort of go out and collect their own data and they can do anything with it and using the existing skills. Whereas those programs oftentimes have to uh, teach people to use those skills and also have to uh, take government into consideration that automatically makes it um, not really what we perceive here as citizen-centric um, or citizen-generated um, data. Um, well, uh, for my next steps, I've actually gone to Nairobi a couple of months ago, and I did. Uh, I interviewed uh, about the same stakeholder composition there, 25 interviews, and I'm still in the process of uh, getting those transcribed, not even analyzed yet. Um, but I'm, uh, I'm still trying to make sense of what Dar es Salaam data and what Nairobi data will uh, actually um, do for my research questions, right? So um, trying to connect, uh, trying to find ways to compare the two cities is quite hard because Nairobi actually is uh, on the opposite spectrum of openness. So um, people told me there, there's no legal imp like um, barriers. They are free to talk and uh, kind of, the, it's, it's quite a radically open um, from what it seems, city and society. So we'll see, it will be interesting um, to see how to compare that. And then finally, I will go and collect some uh, focus group discussion data and write up uh, two comparative uh, case studies. Um, so that's about me and my research. Uh, at this point, I would like to uh, offer um, an opportunity to ask some questions. And uh, yeah. Oh, microphone. Thank you. I was uh, wondering about the cultural pushback you mentioned in relation to introducing concepts of data collection working in a smart way. Do you have any thoughts about how you would overcome those? Oh, well, I'm an academic, so I'm thinking about the problems and then somebody else has to come with the solutions. Right, um, partially joking, but uh, but there is a, it's it's really hard. Uh, but I think the the reason I'm uh, also focusing on that and bringing it up is because those it it just needs to be taken into account. You know, like those projects need to be designed in a way that is. Um, and I know that the international development uh, sort of. Um, actors have tried really hard to localize and um, try to make sure that they get the inputs from the local communities. But I think those, um, those efforts are not enough and it, just, um, and it, will, it will take more time. So you can't uh, assume that you bring you know, skills or data and it will automatically pick up. I mean, it's a, it's a problem with, uh, in our uh, part of the world as well when the governments open data and they just expect people to come and use it. And it's just becoming a more of a problem in, uh, in those cities. And it just will take more time. I think it's doable. We just need to be patient. Thank you. Um, hi. I had a couple of questions. The first one is more simple, I guess. So apart from the 10-cell kind of semi-formal local forms of kind of community organizing, were there other informal structures that um, people kind of organized around. That was one of my questions. And then my second question was, um, you mentioned about comparing um, uh, structures in sort of the global south and the global north. Um, I was kind of struck when you were talking about the city and regions and national level kind of uh, disjunctions and competition. I think that's really a feature of the UK political system. So, um, yeah, 
what are your plans for kind of seeing kind of whether there are, whether there's commonalities there as well? Um, so sorry, just bombarded you with questions. No, it's fine. <laughs> uh, well, the first one is uh, informal uh, organizing. So that's a very interesting question, actually. Thank you for that. Um, so Tanzania in general is very community oriented. So people do, people actually culturally are um, used to uh, solving any community problems just themselves. You know, they're like, uh, you know, if there is a funeral, if there is a wedding, if there is any issue that they have to deal with, they actually first look into uh, getting solved in the, with their community themselves. But that has um, sort of, I mean, it doesn't really have to do anything with using the data. And it also, uh, I guess, uh, it's such a separate way from, so they, they basically, if they're not expecting anything from the government, they're just doing something themselves. Like they're, you know, it's kind of like also a pattern that I've seen that people are organizing informally around the issues that they have, but then they just don't rely on anything else. They don't rely on the government. They're kind of like, they're more reliant on the traditional ways, basically. The community approach that they have is the traditional approach, and it, it doesn't really have to do anything with the citizen engagement. So that's, sort of, that's kind of, um, in my view, would be a barrier too to smart city, you know, because if you talk about the collaboration, a healthy collaboration or like a productive collaboration with the government, um, then you have to um, find a ways to engage you know, and kind of like, um, so in those informal communities um, um, don't really, aren't really a way to this progress, if it doesn't make sense. But, but they are organizing informally. Um, however, just going back to the 10 cell leader question, what my point was is while it's informal, it's actually becoming a very much formal part of the structure. So you actually have government being able to uh, kind of look all the way down to the tensile um, mm, uh, level, and then, and specifically at the data, and so which should be kind of uh, beneficial when you talk about data, but it, it plays out kind of differently, if you know what I mean. Yeah, so what I'm saying by informal is that they're not part of the official government. So they are kind of doing what they want to be doing, right? But the way the system kind of uh, worked out is that there is a strong link between the lowest level of government and those 10 cell leaders, because those 10 cell leaders are representative, basically. of And if the government needs, wants to achieve anything, they have to work with those 10 cell leaders. So it's, this is why it's becoming semi... Um, and actually from Romani Huri experience, uh, because they were working with the World Bank and because they knew they had to work with the government and they knew like traditionally in Tanzania you have to like en engage the government, they actually weren't working with the 10 cell leaders right away, but they were working with the level above and then they didn't manage to get quite engaged with the citizens due to that reason, you know? Um, but yeah, so it's, it's just an... I can see both uh, kind of advantages and disadvantages of that system, to be honest, uh, if we talk about smart cities. It's just, um, yeah, the way the Tanzanian government will decide to take it. Um, to your second question, um, cities, regions, um, I'm not really looking at comparing it at, at those kinds of levels. I'm more looking at uh, seeing what challenges I'm, uh, are coming out from Dar es Salaam 
and how it compares to challenges that the literature from elsewhere has identified. So, yeah, I don't think I will go into much detail. I will probably note that, um, you know, those uh, relations between those levels are, could be problematic, but I'm, I'm probably not going to get that far. I only have a year and a half to go, and that has to be done by 2020. So. you expect from this research that you've done? Is it just an academic paper or a specific, almost like a possible blueprint for application? Um, excellent question. Uh, to be honest, uh, my personal inspiration that it will actually provide an input into further design of those smart cities in uh, Africa. And um, I mean, I'm actually part of the CDT Center for Doctoral Training program, which kind of uh, made um, a goal that our research is not just academic research for, you know, uh, fulfilling some um, academic purposes, but uh, this is the reason why I'm working with the Open Data Institute, is to see how my research can be applied. Um, so I guess to answer your question, uh, it will hopefully provide a sort of a framework uh, for those countries. I don't know how it will be generalizable for all Africa, for instance, but definitely uh, for Tanzania and Kenya, hopefully. And uh, provide, in the end, provide some policy recommendations and recommendation to the development partners as well on how to approach those uh, projects, especially since I'm actually seeing that they will pick up uh, in the next few years. Um, there is quite a lot of still investment going into um, those data-driven uh, initiatives in Tanzania. So in, in a way, I just want to see them done better and um, with, with better impact. Does, does that answer your question? Thank you very much. Do we have any other questions in here? Or Anna, is there any questions on Twitter? Um, so I have a question, then it might be only time for one more. So you said that the government is currently um, very restrictive with how people are being able to use, uh, be able to use uh, being able to use uh, data. Um, are they providing anything to uh, when people are wanting to use data and they don't want to obviously break the Surveillance Act? Is there anything that the government is kind of helping facilitate to them? Well, uh, as I mentioned, uh, there is a process supposedly that you can go uh, through uh, together with the National Bureau of Statistics to actually audit your data and make it official. Uh, I haven't heard any success stories yet uh, to get that done. Um, I guess, uh, um, do you mean provide in terms of data or? In terms of just making it like an easier process to avoid uh, criminal behavior, that sort of thing. Um, it wasn't really part of my interview, so if I say anything about that, it will be speculation. Okay, no problem. Uh, not from what I've seen, to be honest. Um, and um, yeah. Not from what I've seen, quite the other way around. There has been uh, quite a few cases when the government um, sort of charged people with uh, mm -hmm. trying to use some data that uh, they uh, found had. One of the aspects uh, actually of uh, data that I didn't talk about, and it's kind of like, um, there's obviously a trust in data would be an issue, right? So when I spoke with the government officials and I actually suggested to them, how about using some data that the citizens collect themselves? Um, it, 
they were very hesitant because uh, they, you know, immediately started saying that it's a, there's no way of vetting that data and find actually uh, trusting it. So there's definitely, a, you know, a barrier to um, how trusted that data could be. And, uh, yeah, there, for various reasons, um, the, sometimes the government even cannot collect their own data that they could trust. Actually, some of the uh, government officials I spoke with, they kind of uh, said to me about the data that they were getting from their own government that, you know, that those are almost estimations. Like, we can't even trust the data ourselves. Um, so I know I'm uh, kind of, I went to a bit away from the question that you asked, but no, not, not that I've seen, to be honest. Okay. I think we are just out of time now, so if you'll join me in giving a big round of applause to Rosa, so thank you so much. And thank you all for coming and for those watching online. Thanks. You've been listening to a Friday Lunchtime Lecture, brought to you by the Open Data Institute.